What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a librarian, the most frequent question I am asked is how can I get a non-reader to be a reader? Developing a good reader from a reluctant or struggling reader is certainly a complex problem that can be solved with many different approaches. But today, let's talk a little bit about a very important aspect of this issue called reading stamina. Having stamina for something means that you're able to stick with it over a long period of time. One characteristic of a good reader is that they are able to stick with reading over a long period, even when the reading may be difficult. This means that good readers have good reading stamina. Individuals with poor reading stamina usually do not enjoy reading and find that they get bored with it easily. So one way that we can help reluctant readers become good readers is to build reading stamina. If you asked me to do 100 push-ups, having never done one in my life, the reality is I could not do it. I would need to build up the stamina to do them. The same is true for reading. We can't expect a reader to go from little to no stamina to reading like a champ. So the first step in building reading stamina is to practice. Just like building from 1 to 100 push-ups, maybe we need to build from 1 to 100 minutes of reading. Starting small and extending ourselves helps us to build stamina. In this building process, it's important to celebrate the progress children make from one level of stamina to another. Comments like, you read 10 minutes today and you stuck with it even when you got to those hard words, great job, can help children see the connection between effort and achievement. So a little practice that builds to more and more practice is one good way to help those struggling readers build up those really important reading muscles. And that's a little information straight from Rachel's World. How important are stories, especially stories from your experience with family and friends? We share them all the time. We can hardly stop ourselves. Julie Rose, host of BYU Radio's Top of Mind, joins us now on Worlds Awaiting to talk with Rachel about writing and sharing stories from family life for her nieces and nephews that lived far away. Julie is a winner of multiple Edward R. Murrow Awards and is a seasoned broadcast journalist and interviewer. Prior to joining BYU Radio, she worked as a reporter and produced spots and feature news stories for NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Here's Rachel and Julie. Welcome to the studio today, Julie. It's good to see you. I'm so excited to visit today a little bit about your family stories and this culture that you have built in your family of telling stories. So tell me a little bit about how this project came to be. Why, why did you start telling these family stories? You know, I um, about eight years ago, I was I had all of these nieces and nephews who were all in this really fun age of like three and four and five and six, you know, and I was just getting ready to move across the country and I was worried they weren't going to remember who I was. So I, was, I started recording stories, like just regular favorite stories, uh, you know, where the wild things are, stuff like that on, on tape so that they could have story time with Aunt Julie at night. And a few years into it, I thought, you know, I 
I bet I could write some stories about the stories that my siblings and I, when we would get together at holidays, we would sit around the table after dinner and we would just laugh about all of the adventures that we had as kids. And we have this – I had this very kind of – these prominent memories of – being I'm the oldest of five and we were all pretty close in age so the Rose kids were kind of a pack like we lived in this neighborhood where there weren't a lot of other kids our age so we played together and all summer long I mean granted this is sort of in hindsight the way this is all um, it's come together in our minds but we had these stories of these looking back like crazy stuff that we did as kids I was maybe 11 my youngest sister was about four we would ride our bikes all around town in Provo in the 80s all summer along and come back for dinner and do all kinds of stuff. Not illegal necessarily, but we were adventuring. And uh, I I guess I took a little bit of inspiration from the Boxcar Children series of books. Wonderful books. Yeah. That was how I remember. I wanted to preserve that for some of my nieces and nephews. I thought, you know, they would really get a kick out of hearing some of these stories as well because we loved telling them amongst ourselves. And now, you know, like the the, the kids of my, my siblings, I thought they really would enjoy it. So that's how I started, was kind of picking some of those stories. That's a wonderful way to start. And I know you structured it really so that it was more produced, I guess, is the way to say it. So there's a a structure for each of the stories, and then you recorded them and put them on media for the, uh, I did. For the kids to get. Yep. So, CDs at yeah. the time, and then I started doing digital downloads. But, um, you know, about eight years ago, I was thinking, I guess I was kind of going along the lines of, okay, if this is going to be a story time, I'm going to give a CD. I I first brainstormed, what are some of the stories that we love telling about, about what we did as kids? You know, that my mom sits there and goes, you did what? You know, after dinner? <laughs> I never knew that's what you were doing. I'm like, oh, mom, we had all kinds of adventures. <laughs> that was the beauty of it. So I brainstormed, and there were some really clear, obvious ones that I did uh, that I knew had to be on the initial CD. And then, uh, you know, I wrote them in a way so that there would be uh, kind of an arc. Every single one, I wanted it to be like five minutes long and would have sort of an arc. And so there needed to be a little bit of tension or something. It couldn't just be like, well, when we were kids, we used to do this. But I, I kind of had to think a little bit about how could I have how could I have this sort of start some place and take the kids somewhere, a little bit of suspense, and then end it. So that was the hardest part, was thinking about how to structure our favorite stories into stories that actually felt like a story and not just a, well, we used to do this as kids. Um, and then initially I was very ambitious about sound effects and stuff. And as time went on and I did new version, new CDs, I did about 13 stories and all. The later ones I kind of gave up on the sound effects because I realized the kids just didn't care. It was the story they were interested in. It's definitely the word. So let's let's listen to a clip from one of your favorites. Yeah. Okay. So this one, and you'll hear every single story, I ended up just using this little formula to kind of start it off. This is a true story about the five Rose children. It's called Treasure Hunt. The Rose house has a rule in the summer. No leaving the front porch before the sun comes over the mountains. So every morning, the five Rose kids sit on the front steps of the house with cereal bowls in their laps, and they wait. Finally... When the sunlight peeks from behind the big blue mountains, Chris jumps to his feet. It's time to hunt treasure, he yells. 
So that is uh, that is one of our favorite stories to tell amongst ourselves. But we all summer long we were just urchins. We dumpster dived. That was our favorite pastime. And so, and for us, it really was treasure that I could just. I was trying to channel the anticipation that I remembered feeling, and it was important for me. Also, every single one of the stories starts with a "This is a true story" because um, because they are. They're true. I mean, the way I remember it, some of the details might be a little bit, you know, it's stuff that in my mind, was the sky really blue that day? Was it raining? I mean, that's not the point for me. Like this, we actually did this. And so I felt like the kids, I wanted my nieces and nephews to know that this stuff really happened. This is what we did. I felt like that would be more interesting to them. And I love these stories because they're a really wonderful balance of truth and family stories, but yet you've given everybody kind of a distinct personality. You've shown them their true selves, and you've you've made them truly a character, like you mentioned with the boxcar children, that you've made them that unique character. So how did you do that? I mean, I, I'm sure you didn't want to caricature your brothers and sisters. Well, but, but I kind of felt like I needed to. I felt like if, if this is going to be, and I was envisioning a series, and my nieces and nephews, I wanted to introduce them to to their parents uh, as as they were as children, which was maybe a little different than they are today. And, you know, some of this required me as the oldest kind of acknowledging that I was kind of a pain and a know-it-all. And I was always the one saying, we can't do this. We're going to get in trouble, you know? And I'm like, okay, my – if I were to think just from a very simplistic perspective, my key characteristics – I wanted each person to have two. There are five Rose kids. And I wanted each of us to maybe have one or two things that you could always kind of count on Julie to be the one that says, we can't do that. Someone's going to get hurt, you know? And my brother is always the one you can count on to come up with awesome, cool, fun ideas, you know? And and my two middle sisters, like their thing is kind of that they were sort of interchangeable. Like they were this these – like we called them the twins even though they weren't twins, like the little girls. And uh, and so they were kind of always game to go along, but sometimes a little sneaky. And then my little sister, Laura, um, her thing was that she was three and always wanted to do what the big kids were doing. She couldn't say her R. So baby Loa. Baby Loa was how she said her name. Anyway, I think we have another example. This is, uh, this is again, in that dumpster diving um, story of how I would just kind of subtly work in, well, this is, of course, what Julie does, because that's what you would expect. And this is what Chris does, because that's what you would expect. So um, here's a part where we've uh, ridden our, well, we're, we're actually heading over to the dumpster to, to see what's in, what's, what treasure we could find. The dumpster behind the apartment is going to be great today. I can feel it, yells Chris over his shoulder. The girls are pedaling fast to keep up. They screech into the parking lot and jump off their bikes. Chris lets his crash to the ground. Julie leans hers against the wall so the paint doesn't scratch. The giant gray dumpster is bigger than the Rose family van, and it smells like rotten milk. So that was an example of, you know, I'm not saying Julie is the responsible one all the time, but that was the one where, you know, I could always be counted on to worry about... You know, how things were going to turn out. And my brother was like, let's go do it. And I feel like that that's part of what kind of gives it's it's all honest. But also, you know, I amp up some of that. My brother's like, you remember things a little differently than I remember them based on these stories. And I'm like, but 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 it's it's truthful at its heart. And that's the wonderful thing about family stories like this and telling them and sharing them is that they 
are just a slice of life in our own memory and our own experience. So they do in some ways, our memories become that kind of caricature in just naturally as part of of how we remember them. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that you were presenting them this way. Maybe this is my own. I'm, I'm not like a, a child's literature uh, connoisseur necessarily, or really even like, a, I'm not a professional writer of children's literature. I just was thinking about, okay, if I have my nieces and nephews, you know, there's 10 of them sitting in front of me, and they're all five years old, and I want to keep their attention, I need to have them invested in these characters. They need to have something that they can kind of latch on to as because, you know, this story uh, about the dumpster diving, I could have told it to you in 30 seconds. We dove in dumpsters one time. We brought home all of this like paper, adding paper, adding machine paper, and we unspooled it all in the in the yard. And then we like jumped around and pretended it was snow. The end. Right. And then our mom was like, better clean this up before it rains. <laughs> and we're like, oh, but mom, it's treasure. No, it's trash. Like that was kind of the, the you know, that's it. That's how the story ends. But but, you know, I, I made five minutes out of it. The kids, it's funny to watch them listen to it because they're just like, oh, and then what's Chris going to do? And then how is Annie going to react to this? And what about baby Laura? And what was she doing? And so, um, you know, to be able to talk about, well, this is what it this is what it felt like when Laura laid down. And I think we have a clip of this, but some of the like the sensory details, I felt like, are really what makes the story come alive. It's not really what happens so much as how it felt. Well, as we close, let's play that play that last clip of the sensory details. The sky is bright blue and the sun is so hot, it will make popsicles drip sticky down their hands after dinner tonight. But Laura is right. The yard does look like it's been hit by a winter blizzard. Snow fight! yells Chris and throws a pile of paper in Julie's face. She tosses some back, but Chris ducks. Annie and Liz try to stuff paper down each other's shirts and shriek like it's ice cold. Laura lies on her back, sliding her arms up and down to make a snow angel. The paper crinkles. Green grass pokes through and tickles the back of her neck. So you had sound effects there, but I don't think you really even needed them because I was trying to be very descriptive anyway, uh, so they wouldn't need to hear it. And I think that that's important to remember that this can just be beautiful descriptive language that conveys the emotion. I mean, I think we're, we're afraid that kids are going to get bored with that kind of stuff. And really, I think that that I've learned in these stories that that's what they love. Those little tiny details are the things that stick with them. And that is the thing that is important to remember about all of this, that this is this is something kids are going to love and enjoy because it connects them to who they are and where they've come from. So great way to end. Thank you so much, Julie, for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. That was Rachel Wadham with Julie Rose, host of BYU Radio's Top of Mind, talking about the importance of gathering and sharing family stories. You're listening to Worlds Awaiting. Next, Rachel talks to Mark H. Pullum, puppeteer and storyteller, who tells how he got started with using puppets in his work with children. Pullum also talks about a book he co-authored, Dressing the Naked Hand, The World's Greatest Guide to Making, Staging, and Performing with Puppets. Mark is a librarian and puppeteer at the Orem, Utah Public Library. He performs as a storyteller, actor, and puppeteer every year at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival in Orem, Utah. Here's Rachel with Mark. 
We're in studio with Mark today. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much. Mark, I am excited to talk to you today because one of the things that you are expert at is puppetry. And Mm. I think it's a topic that we kind of know about. I mean, we've all seen puppets on television and we all know the great puppeteers of television, Mm. but it's not something a lot of us really engage in. And I think it's an interesting form of dramatic play for children as well as for adults. So let's talk a little bit about how did you get involved with puppetry? that is a great story just waiting to be told. When I was young, I remember Sherry Lewis with Lamb Chops. This was the black and white. And I was fascinated. Kukla Fran and Ollie, these were puppets that had a life of their own. And I remember one Christmas getting a set of puppets. I had a string cowboy, a marionette, and I had an alligator rubber puppet. And I didn't realize that that was my beginning until much later when I attended Brigham Young University and was uh, majoring in elementary education. But also I wanted to minor in children's theater because I knew how important, you know, engaging children into theater was. And Dr. Oaks was at the time one of the main persons. And He approached us wanting to do a television show. I proposed a story for kids that would happen in the library because at the time I was working in a library and I knew that anything kids would want to know about or do or go, anything you can find in a library. So I proceed to write this outline in the script about a librarian and kids coming to the library. But I also noted that there needs to be a bookworm kind of a fun, fanciful character that would pop up and take the kids here and there. And he said, it was great. They wanted to do it. And so I spent hours at the library here on campus looking up books on puppetry. Now, today you could just Google and you would get hundreds and thousands of, of ideas and even videos on how to make puppets. But back then, it required a search And so I think I read every book in the library on puppetry. So at that time, I found something, I guess I did, and I proceeded to hand-stitch a puppet. And it worked beautifully, and it was fun. His name was Booker, (laughs) of course, and I remember even filming it. It's probably in some archive, just dusty and old about this librarian. It never caught on, but I still think that that would be a good series with kids and books and the library. Well, that was my first introduction to really constructing puppets. And then at the library, I would use it quite a bit. We would kick off summer reading programs, and I have two characters, uh, Paige Turner, and I'll read. I'll read about anything I can get my hands on, and Paige Turner reads every book she can read, and they're the characters, and in fact, they were the characters at school, too. So Paige Turner and Al Reed kind of, you know, get the kids excited to read, and they're in programs. Well, Amy at work... She would always bug me, Mark, you've got to write a book. We've got to show people how to do this. And we would take classes and we'd make puppets and and we bounce things back and forth about, well, that would be fun. But she really, you know, is the force behind the book. She wanted to get this book written. And so it took two or three years to get it all. And we had Dallin uh, help us also with some of the advanced. It's not necessarily a book for kids, but they can use it because uh, I find that it's a book for teachers or parents 
or librarians that want to implement puppetry in their their structure or their curriculum or their programming. Uh, kids love it too. In fact, uh, there was a, a one of the in the book. I do about two hours of DVD instruction, and. <laughs> I changed because it was over two years or so, and I'm active in the theater, local theater, and so some of them all have dark hair, some all have my white hair, some all have short hair, and but it's instructional, and we have a lot of fun, and I'll have kids coming up, and they'll say something to me, and I, I won't, it won't, you know, it won't relate. I won't know what they're saying, but it's one of the lines in the DVD. There's one we did a segment on My Fair Puppet, uh, you know, kind of a spoof on My Fair Lady, which I was able to do in the theater. But puppet show, who wants to do a puppet show? And I have a little nephew that he'll (laughs) say that to me and I'll, what what are you doing? And then a little boy, not a little boy, a a boy in his teens came up and he just kept staring at me like I thought – I've got to approach him, see if I can help him. Well, it comes come to find out he has the book and he's read it and he's making puppets. And I got my first awestruck fan that, you know, wanted to – but it's fun to talk to kids about puppetry and how they can make anything into a puppet, a sock. You know, all a puppet is is some material that happens to be enchanted <laughs> and it's talking. So it's been a, a delightful and and to see the skill that is involved in putting together a book, Familius is the publisher and they have taken such great care of using the best layout people, uh, full-color pictures. It was breathtaking and kind of – I was taken back because it's one of my first endeavors to actually be published also. And I hope it's not the last. It would be fun to do more. I would love to see more. I think um, the book's called Dressing the Naked Hand. So, mm. I, you know, it's a wonderful kind of introduction to puppet construction and, and helping people understand the mechanics oh, yes. of how it goes into it. So, like you said, for parents and teachers, it's a, it's a great access because there is such joy in puppetry, I, I wish we could kind of bottle whatever it is mm. that puppetry has and and sell it. We'd we, we'd be ultimately wealthy because and, there's connections. You know, to it. we yeah. have at the library. We opted to have a puppet stage. Uh, it was built by a volunteer scout that wanted to do something. We could have little computer program places and places where kids will interlate inter you know inter what's the word they would play with the computers but we opted to have this puppet stage and the kids have gone wild and parents will put on the show and the laughter and the stories that are told in back of that puppet stage is you know entertains everyone that's sitting there so the power of the puppet is overtaking the planet <laughs> and the book is, is a lot of fun but you, the main thing is just having fun so tell us a little bit about just kind of the basic construction of the book. I know I know we can't go in depth into it today, but but how do you go about making a puppet? What what, what could parents do with their kids at home to to start in puppetry? Well, the the most simple, we have something called stuffets where you take your stuffed animals that have no longer, you know, been that cuddly thing that they want. And we actually do some surgery and make them into puppets. And that's shown in the book. I, My favorite is just the go-to is take your sock and put an elastic band around your top of your hand and your thumb and stick some tape with eyes and you've got a puppet. 
And so you can make a puppet most out of anything. Even you've seen kids play with just their toys and they have this doll talk to that doll and that's a form of puppetry. And you don't have to talk with some of them. They just are there. And I know that kids relate to those puppets in ways that they don't relate to me sometimes. And they forget that the person on the end of that puppet is actually a real person. And it's just fun to carry on conversations with kids. It's a joy. I I think that's an interesting kind of context because I know I've worked with kids with disabilities Mm. and they will often interact with a puppet in a way that they won't interact with human beings. So what do you think that um, parents should really help kids to do in this form of puppetry, particularly in connecting to stories? I think there's an interesting connection here. It's not just the the physical object of the puppet, but it helps us to tell stories and, and engage in that fundamental thing that is so much a part of who we are as human beings and storytelling. Yes, and I, and I think one of the important parts also is it isn't a device – I see so many parents, the go-to thing is give them your iPod, give them your phone, give them something and just let them entertain themselves. It's something that the kids have to do. They put on and they have to talk and they have to interact with others that are near them. And then if parents ask the correct questions, they can get a lot of insight to what their, their child is thinking. And that's the fun. It's going back to the whole play. Let's play. And let's tell stories, and let's just have fun together as a family. Thank you so much, Mark, for introducing us to the wonderful world of puppetry today. Well, it's been delightful. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was puppeteer and storyteller Mark H. Pullum talking with Rachel Wadham about the joy of puppetry. Now we finish the show with Matt Townsend, a presenter in the field of human relations and development and host of The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. I talked with him about the books that influenced his life and put him on the path to his present profession. I didn't like reading growing up, but my parents were avid readers. My mom and my dad would both read, I don't know, probably eight to ten books a month, just going through them, rifling through them. But I never caught on to that. Like, I never... I never loved reading until I got, so I was about 17, I'd start reading, but I'd read self-help books. Really? Which is really strange, but it actually goes with my show, because we do a lot of like life coaching and stuff. Mm-hmm. Then when I went to college, and uh, then I started reading and loving it, started loving uh, certain things. Which So it's really weird, because now that I have a doctorate, I've read a ton, but it seemed like I've always read what I like to study, what I like to read. I mean, a lot of nonfiction don't I don't read any fiction, which is weird, right? Because, I mean, you'd think I'd get into some fiction somewhere. But my, for some reason, my brain doesn't tolerate fiction very well. But, I mean, I, I was a very creative kid. I, I didn't need to read a book because I was always out make-believing and, and making stuff up. I was a very creative mind. I was the youngest of three, four of us total, three sisters. I was the only boy in the house, spoiled rotten. And my parents divorced, so my mom was a working mom, and I would come home from school, and I guess that's probably it. My mom wasn't there to say, now go read. So instead, I would just go play with my matchbox cars, or I would go play Army Man, and I had all the creativity I needed. I love that. I didn't need to read much for it. Uh But I mean, I I wish I had. You know, and that's interesting that what you said about 17 or 18, you Mm -hmm. started reading these self-help books. 
yeah. How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, yeah. It's one of the first books I read. When I was about 21, I read the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey and then later went and worked with him. I would then help him research and write books. So the irony is not having read as a child, but then getting very deeply into publishing and writing and yeah, well, I, my own book. So you write books. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I have my own book uh-huh. called Starve Stuff, mm-hmm. Feeding the Seven Basic Needs of Healthy Relationships. Mm-hmm. And then I've got two more right now that we're writing. Amazing. That's it's great. Fun. Matt, well, this has been powerful and wonderful to talk to you today. Thank so you, thank Christine. you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. Matt Townsend talking about his journey to becoming a relationship coach, which began with his interest in self-help books in his teen years. Matt is the host of The Matt Townsend Show that can be heard on BYU Radio. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.